IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we spin some ping pong balls and play the banter topic lottery. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's joining Guy Fieri on the Rage Against the Machine tour. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, and we're utilizing all the sovereign power of Flavortown to call for the release of uh, Leonard Peltier and uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal. But, um, <laughs> you know, we if we're going to talk about ping pong balls and the banter topic lottery, we also have to make a shout out to our basketball fans and make like a Patrick Ewing frozen envelope type joke oh my god yeah you're dropping some deep breaths here at the top already you're just like you're going from like the rage you know uh pet causes to like some patrick ewing nba lottery references uh the people's heads are spinning out there i mean you're really delivering the goods here at the beginning of this episode it's our darker uh more introspective and insular second hundred uh episodes that's how we're kicking things off you know, Ian and I have been talking, and we're not going to have any meat in this episode because there's no real big album coming out today. Uh, there is a Kasabian record <laughs> and let me, coming out today. And let me just be clear, like, we're, we're going to just use, again, this, it's the more insular, it's the darker sophomores, 100 albums, and also the more contentious one. Like, Steve just did not think that Kasabian was meat-worthy, despite the fact we spent, like, hours on this show talking about bands who will never come up with a jam as good as Clubfoot. Okay, but can you name another Kasabian song other than Clubfoot? So, if I were to guess what a second uh, popular Kasabian song would be called, I'd probably guess Fire, and I'd be wrong, because that's actually the most popular Kasabian song. It is called Fire. I'm sure it was on a FIFA soundtrack. Um, I think like they had, well, they had a canceled flannel nation tour or festival. I, I really wish they'd have like a FIFA nation type festival where you get like Kasabian, you get Kaiser chiefs on the same bill. The problem is if you do that in England, it probably sells out Glastonbury. So maybe if it comes to America, it'll be a little more, uh, you know, in tune. Well, I feel like with our listeners, I'm going to say a good 90% are going to go blank on Kasabian. I, I feel like Kasabian is not a, uh, certainly like an American IndieCast listener reference point. I'd like to think that there's a British listener right now who's tuning in and they're already typing up an email, just schooling us on Kasabian deep cuts, insisting that the third Kasabian album is actually the best Kasabian album. You know, maybe there's like a misunderstood misfire Kasabian album that in reality is the best Kasabian album. I'm just guessing. I, I I have no knowledge of their discography other than Clubfoot. I assume that was on the debut. Uh, I think it was. On, it it might have been. I don't know. It's like I get a conf- to to me. It's like their equivalent to music. The music's breaking where it might be on the second album where like they really perfected their craft. Um, what I am disappointed about is Kasabian changed their uh, Spotify background. Which used to be like the, f- it's exactly what you would expect Kasabian to look like, which is they kind of look like the, uh, the 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 cast of What We Do in the Shadows, but like reinvented as a 
early 2000s Brit rock band, but now they just kind of look like the they just kind of look like Foles as a uh, SoundCloud rap group. It's really disappointing. <laughs> I mean, really, the extent of my Kasabian knowledge, and I could be totally making this up, but I feel like the lead singer was hanging out with uh, the Gallagher brothers for maybe a minute, minute and a half. Like that was a thing, you know, just because I feel like in the aughts, the Gallagher brothers were. Uh, they would latch on to like whatever like was the latest British phenom, and Kasabian was that for about you know fifteen minutes. Although again, maybe they're. I mean, are they still big in the UK though? I don't know. I. I it's so funny because we joked about not talking about the Kasabian album, and here we are. We're we're burning serious minutes <laughs> talking about Kasabian at the top of the episode. Hopefully, people haven't already like turned this off. At this point, this is not really headliner material, but you know, here we are. Yeah, well, I, I would imagine they're still pretty big in uh, the UK. Um, I mean, next week there's like a Silver Sun Pickups album coming out, so maybe they're like the uh, there to our UK listeners, like what might happen if we came up off the top of the episode talking about Silver Sun Pickups. Yeah, I mean, there's Silver Sun Pickups next week. There's there's a Panic at the Disco record and uh i don't know how deeply we want to delve into panic at the disco they're a band that i feel like their peak occurred when i was like too old to care about them and by too old i mean i was like 25 <laughs> like when they had their peak they, like kasabian and like silver sun pickups they have one song that i really really like and other stuff for the most part stuff i don't care about so it all comes full circle are they like the Stones to Fallout Boys, Beatles, like in the uh, you know, mall punk, uh, like mid aughts era? I think that there's no other way to possibly describe them. <laughs> like you have to refer to the Beatles and the Stones if you're going to be talking about Panic and Fallout Boy. Right, but I mean, is there like a rivalry there? I mean, I, I feel like they were foils at that time. Mm-hmm. Am, am I just projecting that onto them? They were- I don't think they were rivals. I think that uh, I think Pete Wentz's label basically signed Panic at the Disco before they ever played a live show. So, um, kind of quasi industry plant, I guess. Uh, they they have a very symbiotic relationship. No beef. I mean, because they've had a very similar trajectory too. Like where you know they started in this mall punk lane in the aughts, and now they just make very shrill, big sounding pop songs that you always hear. At swimming pools, <laughs> you know, in the summer, you know, I, I feel, you know, that song "High Hopes." Oh yeah, which is just when that comes on, it's like a swarm of bees coming after you. Like if you're in a public space, you just have to get the hell out of there if that song starts playing. Uh, and I feel like Fall Out Boy has like ten of those songs from like the last decade, just enormously shrill. Ugly sounding, just, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if we've got some Fall Out Boy fans out there. We, some of the worst music I think that's been made in the past decade comes from Fall Out Boy. Just untenable to me. Yeah, I can't even pretend. Even though it would be like very helpful to my career as an emo writer, I can't. <laughs> I've I've tried. I just cannot even pretend. I like Thanks for the Memories. That like that's my one song uh, of Fall Out Boy that I like. Uh, and Panic at the Disco, it's like the only difference between Suicide, I forget what, it's the second song on the first album. Uh, yeah, those, the, that's as far as I go. So what you're saying is that High Hopes, again, like song, 
the song of the summer in the sense that it makes you think about being at a public pool and just uh, kind of hating the monoculture. Because that's what song of the summer yeah. is to me. Well, you know that song Centuries by Fall Out Boy? Yeah, big that's time like one football of their... song. Oh my god. Awful. <laughs> that guy's voice, I just cannot stand. Patrick Stump. That's the singer, right? Yeah, Fall Patrick Boy? Stump is the singer. Pete Wentz sort of kind of the songwriter. And if you could name the other two guys in the band, which I cannot. Um, yeah, I, I think pa- Patrick Stump, it's a, man. Jerry Shemp <laughs> is one guy. And, Sh- and and Shemp Jerry, I think, is the other guy's <laughs> name. That, that, that's my guess for the Fallout Boy. Uh, I guess it's because Wentz is the bass player. Yes. And then you get the guitar player and drummer. Actually, the drummer, I think, is from Milwaukee. So he's a Wisconsin guy. I should know his name. Um, uh, I'm, I'm betraying the uh, you know my home state by not knowing him. Centuries, though, uh, you know we've talked about like worst song of all time, and you put Delamitri in that category, which I think again is a mistake. But you're entitled to your opinion. Centuries, I think I would put on my list of like the worst songs of the last decade. I hope should be up there too. Hi, yeah, that's up there too. I, but yeah, they're just in that same lane of like, okay, we were mall punk, and now we just make enormously shrill, ugly sounding songs that they play at the swimming pool. You know, that's the that's the, that's the the lane that both of those bands are in. Um, I made a joke at the top of the episode that we're playing banter lottery here, where we had the ping pong balls like in the big you know circular thing, and we're pulling out topics to talk about. And we're going to be doing that because we're, we're going to have some so, uh, Song of the Summer discourse uh, right now in this episode. And uh, I don't feel good about this. I feel like a huge sellout talking about this because we make fun of Song of the Summer discourse. And look, I've been in the music writing salt mines for a long time. You know, I'm a, I'm a full-timer. I'm, I'm a lifer. I've written Song of the Summer articles um, I always feel like it's not an organic concept. I feel like this is something that like the music media invented because summer is slow with news and you have to just have something to talk about. Am I wrong with this? Is this like an organic thing that regular people actually feel like is a thing or are we just inventing this because we have nothing else to talk about? I feel like this is kind of an example of a horseshoe theory wherein like the most like ba- like the most basic, and I mean that like not as like a, a descriptive term of people, but just uh, a basic relationship with the radio. Like if you have that going on, and also if you are like very in deep in music narrative, those two groups care about Song of the Summer. Otherwise, I think like this uh, vast middle part between those two poles really don't think about it too much because... I mean, I don't want to represent myself as like a man of the people, you know, like, I mean, you are the one who lives in the Midwest and so forth. I live in, (laughs) I I am a coastal elite, but nonetheless, you know, I think just having a, you know, full-time job that isn't necessarily in the music writing salt mines and we, no disrespect to people who actually work in salt mines, but um, yeah. Are there are there are there real salt mines still these days? Fuck, man, I don't know. <laughs> like, is that where they get salt? Is that like are they are there people literally in mines getting salt from mines? What I don't know about that. Yeah, this is where our intern needs to get get on the case. <laughs> uh, I mean, because because uh, yeah, maybe it was offensive for me to talk about the music critic salt mines. I, I'm I'm totally ignorant 
on salt mine culture. So I could be totally in the wrong by mentioning that. I, I, I'm just imagining that as, uh, you know, like a 19th century type thing. But we, but we still use salt. So maybe we're getting it from mines. I have no idea. Uh, I think we just get it from the oceans or whatever. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like having, you know, a full-time job and all of those sort of things. Like I don't my, – my relationship with summer isn't quite what it used to be. Like the way that I would remember what summer was, uh, you know, especially like July when things really slow down, is that NCAA football would come out and I'd go to Pitchfork Festival. And neither of those things happen regularly anymore. So – uh, right. Yeah. To me. Yeah. For me, it'd be like, oh, I'm gonna go see Terminator Two. <laughs> this is an exciting thing for the summer, you know. Yeah. Looking forward to like a big summer movie, which I have not had in a in a while. But yeah, I'm with you on that. But I mean, I think you're right. I think there are people who, like you said, like listen to the radio, or maybe they're hanging out in swimming pools to bring up swimming pool culture again, or you know, they're uh, at at summer. Uh, at community festivals and their songs playing over the PA and maybe you hear a certain song over and over again and that becomes a song of the summer. Maybe that can be the thing. I mean, is there a song of the summer that you can identify? You know, can we settle this finally for everybody in this episode? Yep, it's running up that hill. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even joking. I mean, like, this is the song that definitely... I was thinking the other day, it's like, huh, I haven't seen any article on running up the hill in about a week. Uh, that Has its time come and gone? Absolutely not. I saw that Stereo Gum ran a reader's poll on uh, Song of the Summer. Running up that hill was number one. Um, I got to say, it's actually kind of a cool list because uh, Chat Pile's Grimace Smoking Weed JPEG is number three. Uh, which, to me, yeah, that's a Song of the Summer right there about uh, staying inside and doing drugs until you manifest a image of grimace telling you to commit suicide. <laughs> that, 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 that to me spells summer. Uh, but yeah, I mean the Kate Bush thing, it makes sense to me because when I think about songs of the summer, I don't really think about new songs. I tend to think about reassuring oldies that I like to play when I'm having a cookout you know, you have some family members over, you're going to put some oldies on that everyone likes, you know, like summer breeze by <laughs> seals and crofts. Like, I feel like that's the greatest summer song of all time. Like you don't really need another summer song. You just play summer breeze and it's great. I was at a cafe the other day, uh, doing an interview with someone and that song came on and we both stopped to <laughs> note that summer breeze was playing and how great of a song that is. So that I think, is in that running up that hill lane where obviously running up that hill is being talked about because it was in Stranger Things, which kicked off this cavalcade of think pieces talking about that song. But it is this reassuring oldie, I think, for a lot of people. Or you know, even for people who have, don't even know that song, they still know it's an old song and there's something kind of nice about that in the summertime. I also feel like Jerry Rafferty's Right Down the Line, great summer song. <laughs> That's all you need. Um, but in terms of new songs, I don't know about you. And again, like, I don't listen to the radio that much these days. So my barometer for this is, like, if I'm out and about and I hear a song playing, if you're at a community festival, you're at the swimming pool again. I keep talking about <laughs> swimming pools in this There's episode. There's literally nothing else to do in the summer. <laughs> exactly. You go to the pool. Songs that you hear at those places, I feel like it's the Harry Styles song. As it was, I feel like I've heard that song 
a lot. Now, it's possible that I'm actually hearing Take On Me by <laughs> AHA or Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. Because if you're in the swimming pool, <laughs> you're underwater, things kind of sound, you know, a little muffled. So you don't hear all the nuances. But that Harry Styles song seems like it's it. That already has a billion streams, by the way, on, on Spotify. I think I, got, I think I got to a billion in like six weeks. Just an incredible... Uh, you know, rise for that song. Do you get that sense too? Have you heard that song a lot this summer? Yeah, I, I just want to congratulate all of my fellow music writers. You know, it took a lot, but we've elevated Harry Styles. We alone, our work, <laughs> has I elevated this scrappy upstart to hitting uh, a billion streams. Um, yeah, I- that's why I said I don't feel. I feel like a sellout <laughs> in this segment. But you know, you got to do what you got to do. You do, and I think that. Yeah, that song, or just because like it does mesh so well with that particular drum beat. I think, uh, you know, uh, Break My Soul by Beyonce, which, by the way, is her first number one song since 2008, apparently. Uh, she has gone a very long time without a number one single. And, like, to put that into perspective, like, wasn't that Glass Animal song, like, number one for, like, six months? So, yeah, yeah, maybe that's still the song of the summer. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that or, like, one of the Lizzo songs. I mean, it's pretty chalk as far as I'm concerned with Song of the Summer. Or, like, Bad Bunny, which I believe is the biggest record of 2020, I mean, prior to Renaissance. So, yeah, yeah pop, pop stars really dominating it. You know, to the, to the point where you can actually uh, and accurately <laughs> consider Kate Bush to be this kind of uh, weirdo outsider. Uh, but, I mean, look, Return of the Mac, It's you, you know what it is. Oh, yeah. I uh, introduced my kids to that song recently, Return of the Mac. It was a very proud moment for me as a father because I always like to sing like Mark Morrison when that song comes on. <laughs> and uh, I think they were not so into my Mark Morrison impression, but they like you gotta like that song. If they didn't like that song, I would have been very disappointed. I would have I would have said I would have told them I'm very disappointed in you. Return of the Mac, not liking families apart. <laughs> That's right. So um, I've held off on bringing this up for about 20 minutes in this episode, but I, we can't avoid this topic any longer. And one reason I delayed bringing this up is that I feel like there's a segment of our listeners out there who get really annoyed when we talk about the 1975. They feel like th- that we talk about the 1975 too much. We get emails about this from our listeners. And it actually makes me wonder how popular this band actually is. And maybe we can delve into that in- here in a minute. But we have to talk about this band again. I'm sorry. Because there was a Pitchfork profile written about the 1975 this week. Really just about Maddie Healy, the lead singer. And I have to talk to you about this, Ian, because I was reading this story and I was basically that gif of Jesse Pinkman in Breaking Bad saying, he can't keep getting away with this. (laughs) This guy is committing murder on a daily basis with no pushback. And music critics actually seeming to think that he's profound when he's saying absolutely ridiculous things. And look, I have to keep going back to the, to this example because I love Father John Misty. I'm a Father John Misty defender. I feel like he got crucified by music critics for doing way less than what Maddie Healy does. 
And he got put in music critic jail. Like, Father John Misty's not doing interviews. That's not done an interview in, like, years. Which is a, a shame for all of us. Maddie Healy keeps on talking because no one apparently will stop him. I just want to bring up some of the things that, that, that pop up in this article. First of all, we learn that Maddie Healy is very good friends with Bo Burnham, a IndyCast favorite, and that he played him the record. Healy played Burnham the record, and Burnham apparently laughed when he was supposed to laugh. By the way, the record is called Being Funny in a Foreign Language. One of my favorite parts of the story is that they quoted Taylor Swift. Wow. Guess, you know what Taylor Swift uh, said I, about the look, record? I, to be honest, I haven't read it yet. Like, I've had a very busy okay. week. But, like, I, I, I like, like, we're just going to do Rick reaction videos. And, honestly, I thought for a minute, like, because <laughs> there was not much going on this week. Otherwise, we were going to do, like, a line-for-line reading of this profile as... A, yeah, we're not going to do, we won't do a line-for-line line reading, but there are certain parts I want to bring up. Because you haven't read it, I want to get your reaction to this. There's a, th- a three-word quote from Taylor Swift about the record. Again, the record's called Being Funny in a Foreign Language. Taylor Swift says, quote, it's so funny, end quote. I like that she used funny because funny is in the title of the record. It, I, I think it would have been funny if she said, it's so foreign. <laughs> she could have said that. Because foreign is in the title of the record. But she said it's so funny. Anyway, Healy also played the record for Bo Burnham. He thought it was funny too. But then Healy admitted that when he heard Bo Burnham's song, That Funny Feeling, from his special Inside, he got a little like, you know, there was a little competition there. He said, he needs to stay in his lane a little bit, he adds with a grin. When he did that song, I was like, you motherfucker. Because apparently that song is like a commentary on online culture and that's what maddie healy does allegedly although most 1975 songs i hear are about him talking about a woman internet (laughs) being frisky yeah there's not a lot of commentary that i can really elicit from that um one other thing i want to bring up too Uh, apparently this record is produced by guess who guess guess who's producing the new 1975 record what fucking lang (laughs) <laughs> that would be incredible no he's working with a guy maybe you've heard of him jack antonoff uh who uh is producing everybody at the moment and he frames it in the article that like working with jack antonoff is this progressive thing he says people may think it's uncool uncool is in quotes i don't know if he did air quotes when he was talking to work with the biggest producer in the world i don't give a fuck i want to make a great fucking record and there's quotes about cancel culture and all that kind of stuff, too. Um, how does he get away with this? I feel like there are so many quotes in this story, and I know you haven't read it, but I feel like if it was anyone else, especially like another sort of like white male indie dude, if he said any of this, they'd be killed. But Maddie Healy skates. He's Walter White of indie rock here, not getting any comeuppance at all. I don't know why I'm yelling at you, Ian, but I want I want you to like tell me how does he get away with this? Well, I mean, my my thought goes. I mean, I think I'm going to stay on brand here by not referring to Breaking Bad, but uh, to Mallrats, where uh, Brody's like that kid's back on the escalator. Um, yeah, we're 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 really appealing to our forty something audience with the Mallrats references, but you know, okay, so here. 
I, I've not read the article in full, and you know, this is no disrespect to Ryan Domball or Pitchfork or what have you, because like, look, I've established myself as very pro the 1975, and it's a very entertaining story, by the way. Oh, I yeah. want to like shout out. It's it's well done. I'm just beside myself with these quotes. It just blows so me. So I I think there's a part of it, and I've and I've had this conversation with people who like the 1975 as much as I do, which is that um there it's <laughs> how did they let him get away with it basically um he says things that are entertaining in a I, I i read the quotes from taylor swift from japanese breakfast i've seen them kind of come up in isolation on twitter and i like to think of them as similar to like the cameos in pop star never stop never stopping where it seems ultra serious, but if you like think of them being kind of sarcastic to this oblivious person, then it becomes so much more entertaining. And I don't know if I like the 1975 reading this. I actually, th- I actually like appreciate their music more because if like Maddie Healy like really believes 85 to 95 percent of the things he says then it just makes the fact that they can make music this good so much more unbelievable. I'm just way, I'm just so much impressed with how these are the thoughts caroming around this guy's brain, and yet they make some of my favorite music. Uh, I, I just kind of have to admire it. It's like, watching like a, it's like watching Spud Webb take to the air and dunk a basketball. See, the thing with me is that I feel like you know, I've never interviewed Matty Healy. I don't have a read on him on in terms of what he's like in a room. But in his interviews, he comes across to me as an airheaded guy. And the seriousness with which he's treated now by the media just seems so incongruous to me to like what the actual content of what he says in interviews and what the content of the 1975's music is that they are treated as like this commentary on modern society that is incredibly insightful and profound. And I just don't see it at all. I think the parts that I like about that band are the trashy pop aspects of it. And if that was how that they, if that's how they were appreciated, I would understand it more. But the fact that people look to Healy as this like, uh, you know, sort of Oracle of modern times, it it blows my mind. I mean, because the way you're talking about him is in that classic Billy Corgan sense of like he's this grandiose rock star who says ridiculous things, but he makes grandiose, ridiculous music, and it all kind of fits together. But he's in a way treated as like a Bob Dylan figure almost, you know, by some in the music press, and I just don't get it. Like that to me, like that reception. That's when the Jesse Pinkman in me comes out, where he says these dumb things, and it's like not acknowledged that it's dumb. It's taken at face value as being smart, and I just don't think it is. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm the dumb guy here, but I don't know. I read this stuff, and I'm like, how is he not being mocked for this? This is so easy to be mocked for. You're just He's, he's delivering mockable material on a silver platter, and we're just treating it like it's... Uh, you know, like prime cut steak, you know? <laughs> we always must return to the meat uh, metaphors here. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know. Am I off base with this? Am I wrong? I, I would say that 
I do think that like the people who write about the 1975 and interview him, like do kind of acknowledge that he does say ridiculous things. I don't think he's treated uh, in the same way that I don't know, like Fiona Apple would be if like she were to do interviews more often. Like I just think that he is this combination of. Uh, extreme self-awareness, but also, like, self-delusion in a way that's, like, entertaining, but also very rare nowadays. So I don't blame any writer for just... Like, I, it reminds me of something I used to say about, like, Red Hot Chili Peppers albums and that, like, the best way to mock Anthony Kiedis is just to quote his lyrics. Um, and I think that it, you couldn't possibly... Uh, mock Maddie Healy any better than Maddie Healy could. And I think he has some awareness of that. He he says, I, I think I've seen it poll quoted that he recognizes he's kind of a dumb guy. Uh but I I, I again I think that his target uh, also I think the one quote I did see that I do take issue with is uh I believe Japanese Breakfast brought up the fact that a lot of hardcore and punk people could learn from Matty Healy because he takes a stance on things, which, again, I think if you were to read that in a sarcastic kind of way, it would be a lot funnier and probably a lot more accurate because uh, you look at punk and hardcore and they're, it's almost nothing if not topical. So... Well, and he doesn't take a stance on things. I mean, in that article, he says, I'm politically homeless. You know, he talks about how he doesn't really feel like he fits in on anywhere in the political spectrum, which might be totally true, but that's not really taking a stance on something. That's deliberately not taking a stance. I'll say, too, that one of the most illuminating parts of that article for me is that there was a part where it talks about how they were working with B.J. Burton for a period on this new record, B.J. Burton being a really great, record producer based where I am in Minneapolis, who uh, is known for working on 22 million with Bonnie Bear. He did some work on Yeezus. He did the last two low records, which are mind blowing. And Burton ended up leaving the project because they were working with Antonoff and which is like the opposite choice. That's, that's about as far as you can get from what BJ Burton's going to do for you. If you're going to work with Jack Antonoff, but Burton said that like, he was a little turned off by how Healy and the guitar player, who I can't think of his name right now, George? George is, is the George drummer. Something? He's the producer and the drummer. Okay. And he's like a real load-bearing member of the band. Like, he does a lot of production work. Burton was saying that those guys, you know, like when they were writing songs, that those guys would go on Spotify and look at, like, popular songs and study their chord progressions and use that as a launching point for what they were going to do. And Burton was like, I was trying to get them away from that. And the 1975 didn't want to do that, and you know they ended up with Jack Antonoff, who probably produced a lot of the songs that they were <laughs> listening to on Spotify during those sessions. I mean, look, the new 1975 song, uh, "Happiness," I think it's a good song. It's, that's a, that's a that's a that's a solid single, don't you think? Good song, yeah. I mean, you know, just kind of working very much within the wheelhouse, and you have acknowledged how you like them more in that kind of. Uh, Go West, uh, King of Wishful Thinking. I do, mode, I do, and so. yeah, and I, yeah, and they work well in that vein. They that's a good catchy number, a, a toe tapper. Uh, <laughs> so we'll see if most of the record is like that. Um, I feel like we need to talk about Rage Against the Machine here. I, we have not talked about them, I think, ever on the show, have we? No, we haven't. 
Well, we're talking about Rage Against the Machine now because they are on their tour right now with Run the Jewels. And I don't know about you, but like I've seen a, like a lot of like phone camera videos from this tour in my timeline over the last you know couple of weeks. I feel like this tour is really generating a lot of like enthusiasm. You know, people shooting their videos, they're posting them on Twitter and Instagram, and just talking about like how amazing it is and. Just seems like there's like a big rush of excitement again for this band. I think that maybe also speaks to our demographic because, <laughs> you know, Run the Jewels <laughs> right. and uh, Rage Against the Machine. I mean, they've they're separated by about twenty years as far as when they actually released the new music, like fifteen to twenty years. But nonetheless, like very much in the same vein of in a weird way, dad rock, even though like they incorporate a lot of rap because let's face it. Rap is definitely dad rock now, uh, depending on who you're talking about. Oh, sure. Oh yeah. Like run the jewels yes. and push a T are like the Kings of yes. Like dad Freddie rap Gibbs is getting at the moment. There. Vince Staples getting there. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do think that there is kind of an uptick of rage against the machine, uh, fandom because they're, playing i believe five nights at madison square garden um and look i i I think that rage against machine has this every couple of years they don't come back necessarily i mean they tour they get together and they tour they play coachella or whatever and you know it's good to have them back um i think that also gosh it felt like there was a span of like 11 or 12 years where they were not seen as a joke, but um, they were kind of seen as a harmless nostalgia act because, you, I mean, you could think of any number of reasons. Audio Slave, you know, for, for one thing. Uh, Prophets of Rage, I don't know if y'all remember that. Uh, I think that I think that was like the last oh, yeah. review I ever wrote for Pitchfork. Um, it was like this EP they made like in 2016 before the election. And you know, Tom Morello, very well-intentioned, but he's kind of in that Dave Grohl slash Henry Rollins realm of just this guy who is totally available to do every single documentary you could imagine and, you know, talk about, like, how Billie Eilish is the future of punk rock or whatever. Yeah, I I mean, it is interesting with Tom Morello because I feel like whenever uh, you see him doing anything else other than Rage Against the Machine, it's because Zach Della Rocca, for whatever reason, doesn't want to tour very much or be involved in the band. Like, I don't know what he does between Rage tours. It, it, it does really seem like Tom Morello is like, he has like a red phone in his house <laughs> that's just for Zach Della Rocca. When he decides, like Zach is like, okay, I want to tour. This phone just blows up. And Tom Morello will drop like whatever he's doing. Like like Prophets of Rage is like the most egregious example of like him and the other guys in 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 the band <laughs> just biding their time, like waiting for Zach Della Rocca to call. And it's weird to say that about a project that involves Chuck D. And I think that there were uh Be Real from Cypress Hill was in there too. Yeah, so the, it wasn't like they were slumming with like nobodies, but at the same time you couldn't listen to that band without thinking like, oh yeah, like Zach Della Rocca didn't want to do a reunion tour, so they're doing this instead, you know? And now they're on the road. And it's interesting with this band because like I'm not a huge Rage Against the Machine fan, but I've always like appreciated them. Um 
I, I don't really liken them to say the clash in my mind. Like I don't at all think of them really as a political group. I mean, they're obviously a political group, but in terms of like what I take from them, the lyrics just go right over my head. I don't really care about the lyrics at all. It's all about the music and Zach Delaraca's delivery. Like to me, they're more like Led Zeppelin than uh, the Clash. You know, like when I listen to Led Zeppelin, I don't really care about the Hobbit. You know, <laughs> and when I listen to Rage Against the Machine, I don't really care about like socialism or you know whatever cause they're talking about. It's the musical attack that they have when they're together. Like just the sound of that band. They have incredible riffs, incredible grooves. Zach Delarocca, I think, is a great frontman. And the way he delivers his lyrics is really compelling. The content of his lyrics, though, I don't really care about. I do appreciate that there's a generation of people who are probably, uh, you know, radicalized by listening to Rage Against the Machine. Like, maybe that was the beginning of their political consciousness. And I'm not dismissing that at all. I, I, I know that that is an element of their popularity and their significance. But for me, it really is about the zeppelin aspects of what they do. And... When I see these clips pop up and you can hear them play live, like that is what comes across. Not like when they're projecting, you know, political messages on the screens behind them. I mean, I, I mean, do you, does that make sense to you? I mean, I, I, I almost feel like that's maybe the most common way that people appreciate them. That's why people like Paul Ryan, for instance, <laughs> was a, was a rage against the machine fan. You know, I, Obviously, he was totally ignoring the politics of what Rage was doing. Um, but that, to me, is like why they're still such a compelling like arena rock band. Like why they can do Five Nights at MSG and probably kill every night. I think that with Paul Ryan, it did it. What it didn't do was like with Paul Ryan. I think the problem was that, as you said, he's kind of seen as like not the exception, but like for the most part, the rule of rage against the machine fandom, which is not to say that, you know, rage against the machine fans have incubated a bunch of like, you know, weightlifting Republicans more that it's about the music. It's about the riffs. It's about the groove. It's about Tom Morello making his guitar sound like a turntable without using synthesizers. They make that very clear in the, uh, in the album credits, but yeah, I think the like the, what I love about like a lot of Rage Against the Machine songs is that like for the first thirty seconds or so, it's like it's you got that like Zeppelin immigrant song type riff, and then it's like a battle rap song for like the first half of the verse, and then he completely turns cheek like, oh by the way, the CIA is up to weird shit in Chile or something. Uh, <laughs> by the way, speaking of which, like as far as like what Zach De La Roca is up to. Um, there was one time where I really, really thought I saw him at Bodybuilder's Gym at L.A., uh, this gym I used to go to where musicians do go to. Like, I saw Pat Oswalt there on my first day. Um, who else was there? <laughs> the guys from Death Heaven would go there as well. I'm pretty sure Childish Gambino was there one day, and he saw me. Um, but, yeah, we're Ooh. not going to get into Bodybuilder's Gym lore. But, um, yeah, I mean, like... Look, if people get any sort of, like, messaging from Rage Against the Machine or the fact that, like, hey, you can actually do this stuff on a major label and had done that on a major label, I think maybe it'll encourage some other people to, you know, follow suit with that. 
Uh, but look, I mean, I'm 12. Like, I was 13 years old. I knew who Leonard Peltier was thanks to the Freedom video. Did it send me on a path where I was, you know, committed to, like, full communism? Not necessarily, but um, I think they're kind of like a force for good. And, you know, it's what, what's interesting to me now is that when I think about when Rage Against Machine was an active band um, and when their peaks of, I guess high visibility are it's usually during like a democratic presidency like i don't think that people were clamoring for them really during like the book the first bush administration and like during the trump era uh that was like prophets of rage time but maybe i don't know maybe it's just like a band where it's i don't know good to have their thoughts contained and otherwise like a real more i guess safe environment but Again, that's a level of like political analysis that I'm probably not probably not ready to do because I'll just say, yo, Bulls on Parade, that that riff fucking whips, man. Well, I, I made a joke about this at the top of the episode, but there was that story recently about how Guy Fieri is following Rage Against the Machine on, on this tour, that he's hit a bunch of shows like a deadhead, <laughs> but he's a ragehead, apparently. And I do look at Guy Fieri as the platonic ideal of what a Rage Against the Machine fan is. That he's this doughy, middle-aged guy with spiky hair and a goatee, who's just like a good-natured guy that likes to get down to some cool riffs, you know? And I feel like that is probably very representative of the audience. It's not necessarily, you know, these politically minded militant type people it's guy fieri's there's an audience of guy fieri's out there watching rage and yeah that seems like a fun crowd to hang out yeah, in. i mean if you're gonna get like the you know the trotskys you got to get the guy fieri's as well it's just like the nature of doing <laughs> business you got to cast a wide net you think guy fieri has some you know that he's communist he's like, like a closet communist maybe because of uh, rage, we gotta look into the flavored town economy. Maybe like they've gone like full <laughs> socialism or whatever. You know, it's like uh, the the uh, the workers of Flavor Town seizing the means of production. <laughs> uh, to make a segue here, I guess to other examples of '90s rock. We're talking about Rage Against the Machine. They're at the top of the heap right now, doing multiple nights at MSG. Do we want to talk about Weezer? And their Broadway run, I didn't even know this was happening, by the way, which I guess is uh, why it, they canceled their Broadway run. But apparently they were going to do a bunch of shows on Broadway connected to their uh, season albums, which we didn't even talk about on this show. Like, we didn't talk about these Weezer records. You feel like we would talk about it. But... I, I had no interest in talking about it. I'm kind of burned out on talking about Weezer at this point. <laughs> um, but there was a story that came out. This came out like right before we started recording. That they were going to do this Broadway run. I guess like Springsteen on Broadway. It's like <laughs> their equivalent to that. And Rivers Cuomo came out and said, we're canceling because of low ticket sales and high costs. Like there was no subterfuge at all. It was just... We're canceling because no one's buying tickets. And I don't know what this says. Does it say anything bigger about Weezer? Or is it just like, oh, Weezer fans don't want to go to Broadway to hear them play these records that no one cares about? Like, if they did a Blue Album Broadway run, would that have just cleaned up? 
I would say that a Blue Album or Pinkerton show is like a license to print money. But, you know, and I'm not like when you say, do you want to talk about Weezer? I'm like, you could stop right there. I do want to talk about Weezer. (laughs) (laughs) See, because I kind of don't. I'm kind of sick of. I feel like I'm exhausted, finally. And it took a long time. (laughs) It took a long time. Way too long, probably, to get exhausted by Weezer. But, like, when I saw, like, these season albums dropping, because they've been putting out, like, a lot of music. They're a very prolific band. Hmm. They've put out, like, several records, I think, during the IndieCast run here that we, we, we haven't even bantered about. We haven't even, like, joked about in passing. You know? And, and I don't know if it's just, I mean, but apparently you're not exhausted talking about them. Well, I think that this story resonated with me in a way that other Weezer marginalia has not. Because, I mean, can you imagine anyone else at this level going on their fans' Discord and saying outright, hey, we got to cancel this because of low ticket sales and astronomical expenses? Like... That, to me, almost in a way reminds me of what I appreciate and admire about Weezer more so than if they were to make an album that was even, like, 25% of, like, the Green Album or Maladroit. Uh, Like, just, like, imagine Billy Corgan, and I know that, like, Smashing Pumpkins have been accused of, like, having, like, really soft ticket sales, going on the Discord and saying, like, hey, this one's a bomb, sorry, y'all. I mean, I, I, I appreciated that because I think there's like kind of a side story to this in terms of alt-rock, uh, like questionable alt-rock uh, tours, which a very indie cast subject of Flannel Nation, which I don't know what the difference between this and Summerland is. But earlier in the week, Everclear, um, and I've interviewed our Alex Akis, great guy, uh, they, they decided to pull out from this Flannel Nation festival which was happening in san pedro california it they decided to pull out because and i'm going to quote they cited inadequate means to provide the level of experience our fans expect and deserve while attending an Everclear show uh and after that happened all the other bands on that tour started to follow suit filter cracker uh i believe soul asylum was on there as well sugar uh, ray sugar uh, ray yes fastball IndieCast's favorite sponge uh, were on that bill. By the way, uh, we're really stretching the flannel definition here by including Sugar Sugar Ray's the top billed band here, by the way, on, on, on the poster anyway. No connection to flannel. Come on. Yeah, even in their brownies and lemonade phase, which is the debut, they were definitely more of like... Uh, Whatever, I don't know, Hollister or whatever, or like Pacific Sunwear, or whatever the opposite of flannel was. But, you know. Yeah, this should be like Bowling Shirt Nation. You know, this should have a bunch of like Bowling Shirt bands. Sugar Ray, Smash Mouth, Bowling for Soup. Uh, you know, maybe like some crappy ska bands from that time, like Goldfinger, put them in there. Um, actually, Goldfinger's okay. I won't call them crappy. Um that should be a tour, Bowling Shirt Nation. Yeah, and uh, also, if we're going to talk about, like, the band that represents the uh, midpoint between Flannel Nation and Bowling Shirt Nation, I didn't know this until the other day, and maybe they just, like, kind of put this band on there without people knowing. I'm like, who the fuck is Star Zero, and why are they on this this flyer? And then I look in the fine print, featuring members of the Flies. Ah... Uh. Which, okay, first off, 
which fucking members because if i'm going to see star zero and i'm expecting the gods of basketball which of course is the song that anyone wants to hear from the flies like it needs to be the two brothers the rapping guy like i don't uh, if it's the bassist or the drummer i don't give a shit but there is literally no internet footprint of this band star zero i tried to see what that was all about and this is a band that for the most part does not exist except on the flyer of flannel nation and it's like why do i have like where are the people feeding me this information like where are you indiecast listeners i need to know about this shit like well i feel like if, time. if it was the rapping guy from the flies i feel like they'd put that on the poster i feel like featuring the rapping guy <laughs> from the flies the fact that they just say featuring members of the flies it, it does seem a little shady to me it does feel like maybe it was like the replacement bass player at some you know like maybe like the original bass player quit they hired a new bass player and it's that guy and that's and maybe the original drummer or something and those are the two members uh because yeah it'd either be like like who are the brothers in the flies do you know their do you know the name it's brothers you better <laughs> oh fucking god. believe I, you better fucking believe i know that <laughs> oh my god i that that's the thing like where you throw the ball up and you're like he's probably not going to be able to dunk this and then he dunks it you're like holy shit i didn't even think that would work this is lob city because i know this because they are not uh they are they are legends in two games like peewee kirkland they have a surf camp their father is a legendary surfer dorian paskowitz and so if you're thinking to yourself hey the flies always looked like a band that was invented by a bunch of surfers that's because it's true. And also, they got a skydiver on the cover of Holiday Man. I am down to talk 30 minutes about the flies. Like, I am just opening that door. I wonder, like, what the status is of, uh, you know, the, the IP with the flies. That if someone owns the name, the flies, and therefore, you know, you can't just get a bunch of people and tour as the flies. Because, again, this is, like, another thing that leads me to believe that the main people are not in Star Zero because the main people would just tour as the flies, I feel like. And if you're not one of the main people and you can't tour as the flies, then you're forced to come up with this extremely generic 90s alt-rock name, Star Zero. Yeah, that's... Very- and then say that you and then you feature members of the flies. Because if it's the Paskowitz brothers... And I'm and by the way, you could be lying to me. You could, be, <laughs> you, you, you could have just made everything you just set up, and I wouldn't know. But I'm assuming you're not going to lie to me and the IndieCast listeners. Uh, if it was the Pasquitz brothers, it would just be the flies. I think is my point. So I'm thinking with this, like first off, you're right in that Star Zero is absolutely the kind of band name you would expect from like a mid-level like Billy Crudup's band or something like that. <laughs> like if a mid-level like movie star from the 90s were to start a band, it would have that sort of name. But you bring up a point about there 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 there's probably more to it uh than we even know cuz I know that like Fuel had like kind of beef between Carl Bell the you know, the brain trust of the band, and Brett Scallions, which is definitely not the brains. He's definitely the himbo front for Fuel. They had a very uh, ugly split recently, and, like, I think one of them can only perform Fuel songs. It's very complicated, but either way, I mean, if you're coming to the negotiating table with the Pasquitz brothers trying to get the Flies IP, you gotta get got you where I want you. I mean, like, otherwise, like, why are you even there at the table? 
Well, I'm sure Star Zero would have played that song if this tour or this festival would have taken place. By the way, too, I just want to compliment you on the uh, sort of casual virtuosity of naming another guy in Fuel who's not Brett Scallions. Like, I feel like I would impress people if I just knew the singer from Fuel, but you're you're dropping the guitar player. I assume that's the guitar player. It is. Carl Bell. Carl Bell. Is that his name? Yeah, he was, he was out of the band for a while and then came back in twelve. Like he was like Napoleon, recut, like returning from Elba or something like that. Um, yeah. It's just like that, exactly <laughs> like Napoleon. There's no other way to describe it. In the same way that Panic in the Disco and Fallout Boy can't be described with terms other than the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, Fuel no. can only be described in the terms of like 19th century French warfare. I think it's hilarious that this Flannel Nation festival story became a national story. I, I, I don't really know like why the festival was canceled. You, you mentioned Everclear said something about how this festival will not live up to the standards that we like to have for Everclear fans, their experience at our shows. I mean, I assume that this is just like a shady, crappy festival. Mm-hmm. And that's why it got canceled. Uh, I do think it's funny that this became something that was reported on national websites i guess it's just the combination of bands you know this this galaxy of talent on one bill and people just wanted to talk about it for that reason yeah i mean it's not like sour grapes or whatever because like come on the people who are gonna go to that kind of festival are like it definitely in it for the music it's not like they're gonna be oh yeah time to pull out my time to pull out my flannel nation outfit like you're going to coachella or what have you it's just that i really just wish they would just come out and say what the fuck really happened because a lot of this just seems like euphemism for i don't know like i mean it's i think i think it was a live nation event so how shady it was i'm not sure but i mean we're hearing so much about like how festivals are by no means prepared to like put on a whether you're an Everclear fan or not, or whether your expectations are set at Everclear concert, it's it, it's pretty abundantly clear from this point that like festivals are definitely not they're back, but they are definitely not able to put on an experience that uh, is w- like say even 2018. There's just been so much brain drain and uh, you know people concerned about money that. Um, I don't know. I think we're in a weird way picking back where we left off uh, in 2018 or 19 when we were wondering just like how sustainable this festival culture really is. Well, I saw Everclear. This is the only time I've ever seen them in in a gymnasium at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh 20 years ago. And if this festival was a worse experience than that, then it was pretty poorly set up. That's all I can say about that. You gotta that. tell me more. Like, you cannot stop at, like, I, I I know we're running long, but, like, you gotta tell me. Like, first off, like, 2002, this was, like, the uh, double, Everclear released, like, kind of a double album at that point. Am I, am I, am I, am I, am I mistaken? That sounds about right. That sounds about right. I was, I was working for my hometown paper at that time and that was the big rock show <laughs> that week so i went to go review it and i'm trying to remember who else was on the bill i saw a lot of shows at the U- uw oshkosh gymnasium i saw jason Mraz there i saw michelle branch there i saw everclear there i saw bob dylan in the same gym <laughs> i saw a lot of people in this gym man it was it's was, it was crazy this was like the uh you know the 
the Beacon Theater of Oshkosh at that time. The CBGBs of Oshkosh. And by the way, it was Songs from an American Movie. That Everclear really did put out a double album in uh, 2000. Uh, based on the film American Movie? No, but Is there it was... about Mark Borchardt? I think it was more just like Art Alexakis's uh, conceptual gambit. Because the first album, I remember, it was like super happy. And then the second one, subtitled Good Time for a Bad Attitude. So you could kind of, it was like sort of like his version of, say, Sweat Suit by Nelly. <laughs> right, which came out around the same time. I saw Nelly around, I reviewed a Nelly concert around that time, too. <laughs> I'm going to release a volume of like my concert reviews from the, the aughts. Got Nelly, got Everclear. I saw Toby Keith a bunch of times. Yeah, Crazy I think man. this is what we need to pivot to in the second hundred episodes. Just you, like me, just setting you up to tell stories about seeing bands at the Oshkosh Gymnasium in the early 2000s. That's really what the people want. Yep, Tales from the Gym coming up here on IndieCast. <laughs> We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So, you know, in the spirit of this episode, I am kind of talking about old music as if it were new. Um, A band that I was very into and very excited about uh, from, let's say, 2016 to 2018, a band called Jowska. They were from Albany. They released a really great album in 2016 called Topiary uh, that was sort of kind of late stage emo revival they signed to tiny engines moved to philly uh released an ep in 2018 and haven't heard a word from them ever since it's one of those bands that you care about a lot for a very limited amount of time and just slip your mind as they go on to make side projects and so forth out of nowhere last friday they dropped a new album but it's kind of an old album uh called visions from the bridge it was completed in 2018 and it's quite a good, quite a good record. Um, it's more kind of shoegaze leaning than their past work, which was kind of uh, modest mouse, world is a beautiful place style emo. Um, I I want to bring this band up because not just uh, this record, which I think is very good, and it's about a half hour, so it's worth your time if you like kind of groovy or shoegaze indie. They are gutting a body of water. The guy's newer project is going to ramp up to have a pretty cool end of 2002 with a split on top shelf and a new record. But, I mean, this is just, if you like to remember some emo revival guys, and I think we've reached a point where we can have remember some guys from this era, um, this will hit it on two levels. First, which is a great record, and second, you can just really relive your late phase Tumblr uh, times. So I want to talk about a band from Canada called Kiwi Junior. And this is a band you all might have heard of because they've been pretty prolific in recent years. They put out their first record in 2020. It was called Football Money. And they've put out an album per year since then. Uh, their, their third album drops today. It's called Chopper. And with this band, I've seen them compared in the past a lot to Pavement. And I think that's because the singer sounds a little like Stephen Malkmus. Also, I think because of the pavement connection, I've I've seen them likened to parquet courts. Uh, and parquet courts, of course, is often compared to pavement. I will say though, on this new record, it gives me vibes of Dare I Say It, The Stills, Logic Will Break Your Heart, another oh. indie cast favorite. Woo. You know that sort of mid aughts Canadian indie rock. It feels like that to me. It's a little slicker, I think, than their previous records. It's very catchy. A lot of just very 
pretty guitar rock mid-tempo songs with the sardonic lyrics added to them, commenting on a range of topics. Uh, there's really a lot to dig into here, but again, it's just very pleasurable indie rock guitar-based music. And uh, if there's anything we like on this show, it's that kind of music. Uh, so yeah, if you are looking for a throwback to like the second wave of like return to rock bands from the aughts, you know, the wave that came after the strokes, those kind of bands, bands like the stills, but maybe with like a little bit of pavement element added to it. I think you'll really like this record. Again, it's called Chopper. The band is Kiwi Jr. It's a record I like quite a bit. I don't think I've heard a more convincing argument to listen to a new record than the one you just made. (laughs) Well, I knew when I dropped the Logical Break Your Heart ref that you'd be on board. Hopefully I haven't oversold it with that. But again, I was getting that vibe. Maybe it's only because they're also Canadian. But uh, I don't know. You're, Give it a listen and let me know what you think. Yeah, I'm, I'm like hoping I don't come on to the next episode saying you promised me logic will break your heart and instead we got without feathers. <laughs> Ian, man, this is like a deep ref uh, classic from Ian, like this episode. Just so many deep refs from you. Just an incredible display of virtuosity of remembering some guys, remembering some album titles, remembering some guitar players from Fuel. Uh, I hope you all are really appreciating the display that Ian has put on in this episode. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 